special speaker has been this this weekend. This weekend, um, our uh, keynote speaker has been Brooks Buser. He's the president of Radius International. Uh, he spoke last night, uh, delivered a, a great message about going, and he's going to continue um, with his with his kind of three part series uh, this morning. So he'll be here, be speaking for us this morning, and again tonight at the six. But let's welcome up Brooks. Thank you, Bert. And I don't know who picked that last song. That is a great song. I have never heard that before. That is like, it's theologically correct, which is not something you can say a lot about in songs today. Uh, but it is, it's an excellent song. I really was blessed by that. Um, friends, I am excited to be here. I've heard a lot about this church through various friends of mine and haven't met Mike and Maya in person, but got to meet them yesterday, was really encouraged with just the way that this body gathers and the emphasis that you guys put on various things beyond just missions, but uh, being theologically precise, being careful, being a faithful light to your community. What a wonderful thing. And I hope you realize how blessed you are to be a part of a body that puts the priority where it is supposed to be on those things. That is a uh, not as common in this day and age. I travel a lot. Uh, I speak at a lot of colleges, uh, various conferences, and just get to interact with uh, various parts of the body of Christ, especially in the English-speaking world. So be blessed. I pray that you are encouraged with the body that God has placed you in here. For this morning, uh, we are going to continue, like Bert said, uh, kind of on a trajectory. So last night we talked about goers and what goers are supposed to do and what goers are supposed to accomplish once they go on the mission field. John Piper has a famous statement that if you believe this book to be true, this is the Bible, if you believe this book is true, you have three options when it comes to missions. One, you're a goer. Two, you're a sender. Or three, you're a disobeyer. There's no fourth option. You're either a goer, a sender, or a disobeyer. If this book is true, if this book isn't true, you have all sorts of options. So we're kind of going in that trajectory. Tonight's message is not going to be on disobeyers, just so you know. Uh, It's going to be on obstacles to fulfilling the Great Commission. But senders is kind of the emphasis, what I'm going to press for in this message this morning. So um, three books really quickly. If you are a book reader, and I trust some of you like to read good books, if we're going to press into missions, uh, number one would be Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. If you don't have time and you can't read the whole book, read chapter five. Chapter five is the theological reason, what I'm going to get into today with Matthew 28, 16 through 20, why unreached people groups, or better yet, unreached language groups, is the goal of the Great Commission, what we are to be about. So let the nations be glad by John Piper, uh, a biography, I think the best biography and missions out there, To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. That is the best missions biography. Really close second to it is the autobiography of John Payton, not John Patton. Love John Piper. He's been wonderful, but he's discipled us all to call him John Patton. It's not. It's John Payton. Uh, The Scots reminded me of that at a Banner of Truth conference. And then book number three, What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. What is the mission of the church? Why does the church exist? Do we exist for ourselves? Do we exist to produce better marriages, better families, better fathers, better mothers, better witnesses to our community? Well, that's what we do as Christians, but what is the mission 
of the church. And Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert get into that really well. So those three books, Let the Nations Be Glad, To the Golden Shore, and What is the Mission of the Church. I would dip into any one of those books, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you some uh, resources to read beyond my time here and as we step out of Missions Weekend. So I'm going to give you just a smidge of my own background. We talked about this last night, uh, but just get into it from a different aspect so that you kind of know where I'm coming from. So I am from San Diego, California. Uh, was went to college there, met my wife there by God's good grace, got married. She's got a background in counseling psychology. Uh, I had a background in business, ended up working in accounting in Europe primarily. And then we got challenged into missions through reading our Bibles uh, and the confirmation of our local church, Claremont Emmanuel Baptist Church. That's the church that I've been a member of for 27 years and got married in that church, uh, have come back from the mission field in 2016 to continue to be in person there, but have been very much blessed by that body. We were sent overseas in 2003 through a series of circumstances, and I talked about this last night. We ended up among the Yembe Yembe people group. The Yembe Yembe's had been asking for missionaries for seven years, sending out letters faithfully. Will someone come? And they weren't asking for Jesus. We know from scripture that no man seeks after God. That just doesn't happen. They were asking for the little white pills that would help their babies from stop dying. They had seen other missionaries move into other locations, and they wanted that. They wanted this talk that they had heard about that when the talk came, it completely revolutionized this village that they had been close to when the missionary came and they wanted their babies to stop dying and they wanted to hear this talk. They weren't sure if they would like it, but they wanted to hear it. And so seven years asking for missionaries, we ended up moving in among them. We got adopted into clans. We had to become men. We had to kill a boar at night with a spear by ourselves, all the guys on the team. That's how a boy changes into a man. It was a little bit uh, tricky. Um, I'm not a great boar hunter per se, especially with a spear with a shotgun. I'm sure I'd be awesome. But anyways, uh, we moved in there and we started learning their language. And it took us two years to learn their language to full fluency, to where we could actually speak in a way that they would understand. And we could speak with metaphor, with simile, with the color, the all the different aspects of the Yembe language called Bises. And that's what, when you move in among an unreached people group, probably the biggest hurdle is to learn their language, to full fluency, to know their culture that well. And finally, when we got near to the end of the two-year process and we were getting ready to teach them, we had to develop an alphabet for them. They'd never read and write before in their own language, so we developed an alphabet. I translated most of the Pentateuch ahead of time. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then I was dipping into the New Testament and we told them we're finally going to do the thing that we came here to do. We told them we were going to teach them how to read and write. We were going to learn their language. We were going to translate an important book. And the fourth thing, we were going to teach them the meaning of this book. We are going to tell you where your ancestors have gone. We're going to tell you where your dead people have come from. We're going to tell you where the sun, the stars, the moon, all of these things come from. And remember, when you speak to a people group, no man is a blank slate. Everybody has answers. Everybody has their own way of viewing the world. They have their cosmology. They have their anthropology. They have the way that they see the world working together. And so for us to know the Yembe Yembe worldview before we brought the biblical message so that we could bring those two into direct collision with each other, and then they would have to choose. One is true, 
One is false, but both cannot be true at the same time. Same thing happens in the United States, though usually it's secular materialism. Usually it's a different worldview that you're making war against. Christianity cannot be true alongside another worldview. It's either true and it dominates and subverts all other worldviews, or it's not true. But you have to choose between one or the other. And so we started the teaching and the entire village turned out in mass. We had about a thousand Yembe Yembe's. And when we teach in Yembe Yembe, now when we have, so we don't have a church building, we have the teaching house. The first teaching house went up and we taught them how to read and write in it. And then from there, we had the people come and we would teach in it. And now the teaching house is where the church gathers together on Sundays. Sometimes they gather together on Wednesdays for different classes, but they would gather together. And the Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys are a normal North American audience. You know, the right time to laugh, the right time to be quiet, the right time to do all these different things. The Yembies had never sat in institutional learning. So if you're teaching even to this day and they like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere. Keep talking. This talk is good to my belly. So the belly is the seat of their emotions. So ours is our heart in North America. My heart is broken. My heart is full. That kind of thing. Theirs is the belly. Everything emanates from the belly. And so uh, if they don't like what you're saying, they will also yell at any time, enough, this talk is making me sick. I'm about to throw it up. Because again, it's coming from their belly. And this is happening while you're teaching. So you know if you're flying and dying really fast. So we're teaching the Yembies and we don't start in Romans. We don't start in Matthew. We start in Genesis 1.1 to get the full scope of the counsel of God. And we start teaching about this God who is unlike their gods because they had so many gods and their gods did things in a way that were so duplicitous, so shady in the way they interacted with man. And here is this God who creates all good things and he makes things good the first time. And then he makes Eve and he gives her to Adam and there was no bargaining. There was no weird, weird stuff that goes on. He gives her to them. And this is the first perfect marriage that we see in the history of mankind. And the Yembies, we would, we would take the, so the Yembies have 17 different kinds of bananas. They have 14 different kinds of sago. You guys know there are a lot more kinds of bananas than just the kind of bananas you get in the United States. So we would lay out, we had a canoe about as long as this stage, and we flipped the canoe over and we would cut up different kinds of food. We flew in foods from Australia that they'd never tasted before in their life. Oranges, apples, cut them up small enough, they're like about atomic size so that everybody can get a piece, laid it out on the canoe and everybody's tasting these foods for the first time. Does God eat food? No. Why does he make such wondrous variety? Because he loves you. He loves me. The God who cares about people. And they started falling in love with this God who was so good. Genesis 1 and 2. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. The hinge of all humanity. Everything changes at Genesis chapter 3. And so we would teach and we would act things out. Because again, they're concrete learners. And we're teaching and then we... They, no, 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 no. Show it to us in the skit. Show us to, Act it out for us. And again, they haven't seen videos. They hadn't seen movies at that point in history. And so anything we did was like MGM and Fox on steroids. Like it was just unbelievable. And so we had, I was Satan. I had a black bed sheet on and my coworker's wife, she's Eve. And the Yembies at that time would sit around us in a huge circle. So you got about a thousand people and they're sitting around you and you teach from the middle and you kind of teach to the side, teach to the guys in the back just don't get it. But you, you teach in this way. And so we had a tree that we had 
planted the day before. It was a dirt floor where we were teaching and they were sitting on canoes. And we're walking around and me and my coworker's wife, and I'm whispering to her loud enough for a thousand people to hear, Eve, Eve. Just take the fruit and your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. And the Yenbies, again, they're not a North American audience. They're yelling at her. These are unbelievers. They're cussing at her like crazy. Hey, smart girl, where do you think that food in your belly came from? What are you going to do? You're seriously going to... And she reaches out. She's getting ready to grab the fruit. And one of the Yembies gets up and grabs her hand, pulls her hand away from it. Because they don't see fables and fairy tales. They see their ancestors, and what happens to their ancestors will trickle down to them. We had the lady sit back down. It's a skit. I know, but she's going to pick the... I know, but there's more to the story. She sits back down. My coworker's wife reaches out, grabs the fruit, takes a bite. thousand people go quiet. And we start teaching on the ramifications of the fall. Over there, where we live in the tropics, when we moved into Yembe Yembe, somewhere between 10 to 12% of all the girls that got pregnant died in childbirth. This isn't some theoretical thing. In pain, you will deliver children now. This is real. From dust you came to dust you will return. Man, to see a dead body in the tropics and what happens, that quickly you have to bury people. Because it's not like in North America where you've got various things that will hide the stench of death, that will hide the gravity of a human body. This is all real. But there's a promise in Genesis chapter 3 as well. And this was the thing that we hung on to. We told them there's a promise that someday I will send someone. The Christ, or the one that gives the curse, says this as well. I will send someone who will make things right between God and man. Someday, and we had, we had another tree that we went over and we ripped a branch off and we hung it from the actual lectern that I was teaching from. And that branch, over the next four months as we continued to teach, it went down into smaller branches, then it went down into leaves, and over the four months, those leaves turned from green to yellow to brown, black, and they fell off. The promise of God that when we broke out from God, when our ancestor broke out, that trickles down to us today. That's why we bury people because of what our ancestor Adam did. But the promise is that someday I'm going to send someone who is going to put the branch back in the tree, who has the power to make things right between God and man again. Someday there will be one coming. Guys, I, I never would have believed it unless I'd have been there myself. And I've heard of other places as well. We went to the next story in the biblical narrative. We went to Cain and Abel. And one of the Yembi stands up in the middle of the teaching. And he says, wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk. Stop the talk. This one that you're talking about, Cain, is he the one? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? No, he's not the one. Good question. He's not the one. He sits back down and the Yembe is being, oh, what a dumb question. And then people that are closer, that was a great question. I had the same thing. He sits down. Every Old Testament character that we introduce, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, somebody asks the question, is he the one? Is he the one who's going to make things right? Guys, do you understand that the whole thrust of the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of the one who will fix what happened in Genesis chapter 3? That's why we sing about songs like this, Jesus, the greater Adam. Jesus, the one who fulfilled what Adam could not, what David could not, what Moses could not. We press for the one who will make all things right, who's a better king, a better prophet, a better priest. 
And every one of these major characters that we introduce in the Old Testament, pushing to the one who will come. And finally, after three and a half months of teaching, we get to the New Testament. And I'll never forget for the life of me, we get to the book of John. This is the first book that we open in the New Testament. And John sees Jesus walking alongside the river Jordan. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we had like seven YMVMBs popping up. Wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk, stop the talk. This is the language of Yemi. We're not, this church hasn't turned Pentecostal, as far as I know. <laughs> this one that Jono is speaking of, is he the one or are we waiting for another? That is the question. Guys, the privilege of my life to say he's the one. He's the one. In fact, he's the reason that we left our homes. He's the reason we left our families was the talk about this one and what he will do. And man, I mean, people started yelling from the back. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. We don't want to hear about him. Tell about this other guy. Who's the guy walking alongside the Jordan River there? Tell us about him. No, no, no. We got to build the house. Remember, we had this analogy where you had to plant the post, then you build the floor. It's how you build a house in Yemby Yemby. And so, no, we're building the house and we got to build it in the right way. All right, well, hurry up and get to the talk of this one. And we keep pressing on. And I was so encouraged to see the Yembis as we start to head into the talk of the Christ, the one who is so different from others who had come historically and how Jesus intuitively hangs out with people that are more like the Yembi Yembis than they are like the people in the big towns. Jesus, if he was here, and we would go around and we would have different individuals. Because again, this is the tropics. This is the, there's a reason why the Yembi Yembis heard the gospel in 2008. This is the honest truth. The easy places where the gospel can go have been reached. It's the hard places that are left in 2022. The easy places have been reached. It's the places that are difficult to get to, that have hostile governments that really don't like the gospel, whose languages are very difficult. That's where the gospel doesn't exist in 2022. And the Yembis had this intuitive sense that if Jesus was here, he would be with us. He wouldn't be at TGC conferences. He wouldn't be hanging out in Port Moresby with the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea. He wouldn't be at the big pastors get together where they do this annual thing and everybody pays some money to show up and shake all their hands. Jesus hung out with people who had sicknesses that nobody would touch them. Jesus would actually touch dead bodies, a no-no for Jews. Jesus hung out with prostitutes. Jesus hung out with tax collectors. Tax collectors... Jews in the old days, when your son turned into a tax collector, you had a funeral for your son because he was dead to you. He was so dead, we have a funeral, we're never going to talk to him again. And Jesus hung out with those people. And to see them fall in love with this one, even before they knew he would die for them. And guys, I don't have the time to get into that day of days, April 24th, 2008, when we actually presented the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from that, 45 to 50 people became right with their father again, right with the God of heaven. They were brought back into the family of God. They became children of God. And from those 45 and 50, how they lived and how they died, more and more people came to the church to where it's about half of the MBMB village today. If you got your Bibles, turn over to Matthew 28. We're going to touch on this passage really quickly, and then we're going to dive into our main passage for the morning. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is the clearest we have 
great commission message in Scripture. There are other great commissions in Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and Acts 1, which we touched on last night. But this passage, Matthew 28, 16, is the clearest great commission passage that we have in Scripture. And this passage is separate from three of those other passages. It's not a repeat. It's not like the Great Commission was given in different versions and different guys recorded it. That only happened twice. Four of the five Great Commissions are individual circumstances that were different from each other, different time, different place, different uh, location. So Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, and I'm only going to pull two lessons from this passage, then we'll jump to Romans. It says this in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." That's it. That's the end of the book of Matthew. There are no more verses. That's the thrust of the book of Matthew and how it closes, how Jesus gives this to his disciples. This is where we get from the church and the way that the church is supposed to operate, the mission of the church. We press on to those places. He gives it to the apostles. The apostles carried on in the book of Acts and every church that they plant has this same DNA the same organic impetus that we keep pressing on. And that's point number one of what I want to press into this morning, is that this passage right in the middle of verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You guys are a well-discipled church. You understand that that, that, that uh, actual section in there, disciples of all nations, the actual Greek is called pontata ethne. Pontata ethne, that word ethne, is the word that we get ethnicities from. So a more accurate English reading would take my gospel to the nations, to all of the different ethnic groups. He's not talking about geopolitical states. He's not talking about Mexico, the United States, Germany, Russia. He's talking about ethnicities. Take my message and go make disciples of all ethnic groups in the world. This is why we cannot call Papua New Guinea, Russia, China, India, a reached country. The national language has good churches in it, but there still remain people groups, ethnic groups, that still don't have the gospel. This is the thrust of the Great Commission. Not to get to every country, but to get to all ethnic groups within those countries that have their own language, their own way of seeing the world, and still have no gospel, no disciples, no church. That's the big metric. Do they have the gospel? Do they have disciples? Do they have the church within their own languages? That's the thrust of it. And I was stunned. There's this really good book by John MacArthur. It's called 12 Ordinary Men. If you've never read that book, it's a wonderful little expose on kind of the 12 apostles. Uh, When Judas, you guys know, falls away, then Matthias comes in, takes his place. I was stunned at the tail end of it. He adds a little bit in about Paul, the 13th apostle. You've got Matthias who makes 12, and then you've got Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Of the 13 apostles, 12 of them died in foreign lands. Only one, James, dies in his home country. What does that say about what they understood? 
They understood this message. You keep going. You keep pressing to those places that still don't have the gospel. That have no church to carry on and to replicate disciples among the community. Twelve of the thirteen. Why? They understood this passage. They understood what it meant. This is what we are to be about as the people of God. And then point number two. The primacy of the local church. Man, I hit this last night, but I'm going to hit it again because it is so central to be a member of a local church and a faithful church member. You know how you measure faithfulness? Usually, the number one bar, do you show up on Sunday? Do you show up on Sunday? And do you show up every Sunday, apart from sickness, apart from travel, apart from business? But do you show up on Sunday? Man, I've heard one guy uh, say, man, the number one metric for being a good father, a good dad, a good husband, and a good church member, show up. You show up, that's 90% of the battle. Man, are you there for your wife? Are you there for your kids? Are you there for your church? Are you a faithful church member? And the primacy of the local church. Look at this passage again, what he says at the end of verse 20. Teaching them, which not just disciple making, but then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does that mean? That means that you disciple people to maturity and you disciple them to the point to where they understand the primacy of the local church. You gather those disciples into a local church. Why? Because churches are commanded to baptize new believers. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Churches are commanded to regularly gather on the Lord's Day. Churches are commanded to teach the word of God. Churches are commanded to raise up, disciple, and confirm new elders and deacons. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. Not through individuals. This is why we're going to send out Josh later this morning. He's a representative of this body to go plant a church in Brazil. But he's a representative sent out from here. This isn't his own convictions. This isn't him being a lone ranger. He's a member of this body. We send out members, but they always emanate from the local church. The goal of the Great Commission is the church. Not just to see disciples, not just to see converts, but to see those disciples and converts gathered together. The first time that we gathered the YMBMB church together as we started gathering, the form of it looked very different. We sit on flipped over canoes. When we do the Lord's Supper, we have coconut. So they take a coconut and we cut that coconut into a bunch of pieces. We have one cup and this one cup, we had to keep refilling it. So everybody who's sick goes up, drinks from the cup first, then we clean the cup off and then everybody who's not sick, we fill it back up again and we go up and drink again. The form looks different, but the function, the heart of it is still very much the same. Turn over to our main passage for this morning, though, Romans chapter 15. Let's look at how Paul saw the Great Commission, how Paul understood the Great Commission and the fulfillment of the Great Commission and who was to take part in that. Paul, Scripture lets us know, and church history as well informs us, that in A.D. 63, Paul gets released from prison the final time And he goes to the island of Crete. He encourages Titus there on the island of Crete. And then he goes to the city of Nicopolis and he writes the book of 1 Timothy and Titus there. And then he travels all the way up to Spain. Some church historians will say that he goes all the way to Britain. We don't really know for sure, but that's his final fourth missionary journey. But before he does any of this in AD 63, in AD 57, he writes a letter. 
And he writes a letter to this church that is going to be a natural jumping off point. And he writes this letter to this church and he tells them what his personal doctrine is. This is what I believe personally. This is how I understand the Christ and who he is and how he saves us from our sins. And then he asks them to support him. He asked them if they would get behind him financially, if they would help him on his journey to Spain. This is the letter that we know as the book of Romans. Romans, most people don't realize this until they get to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans is a missionary support letter. He's asking the church in Rome, support me as I go to Spain. But he gives all his credentials ahead of time. That's not the main thrust of the book of Romans, but it's one of the thrusts of the book of Romans. Roman church, will you support me as I head on? And so let's pick this up in Romans chapter 15, verse 18. Let's get Paul's heart and some really important things that he lays the groundwork for as he steps into this request of the Roman church. He says this in verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem, here comes the kicker. This is the punch. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So he leads in and he says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the teaching of the word of God. Guys, man, it is just a small little tangent. Do not look down on the ordinary means of grace. The teaching of the word of God, prayer, And then the reputation of the local church, the witness of the local church, Ridgeview Bible Church, your reputation in the community, how you speak, how you invite people to the local church. The the witness of the local church is one of the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary in that there's nothing supernatural about it, and yet what happens here on a Sunday morning is supernatural. To read and to be taught from the word of God, that's life-giving. That changes hearts. That changes minds. The ordinary means of grace. But he presses in and he says this remarkable statement. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, modern-day Albania, I've fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. That would be like somebody in our time saying, from New York City all the way around to San Diego, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Done it. And then he doubles down. He doesn't just stop there. He presses further. Okay, now to understand this, here's a little Bible hermeneutics lesson. So back in Paul's time, they had this thing called the chiastic pattern, which the main point of the sermon, the main point of the argument that you were making would come in the middle. In our culture today, the main point comes at the end. And that's why you don't run a marathon after you've eaten three McDonald's Big Macs. Like the main point comes at the end. The main point for those guys in that time came in the middle. So for our ears, we're going to pull out a chunk and we're going to read the next chunk so it makes more sense and we'll come back to the main point at the end. So skip forward three verses to 1523. So he's already said, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I fully proclaim the gospel of God. Now jump to verse 23, and he says this. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. There's no more work for me to do. 
Not only have I fully proclaimed the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, from New York to San Diego, there's no more work to do. Nothing left to do. If somebody got up in our pulpit today and said that, we'd probably run him out of town. What does he mean? How does Paul have the audacity to say that? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about local churches. I come back to this again because it's so primary in the way that Paul saw the world. Jerusalem, Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, all of these different places had little outposts of light. They were called churches. And because of that, Paul saw them as reached areas. Once there was a church there, there was no more work for Paul, the pioneer missionary, to do. There are other ministries that help with these things. Remember, at the end of his days, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. Something had cropped up in Ephesus. Timothy, go to Ephesus. Go strengthen that existing local church. Timothy was not a pioneer church planner. Titus, you go to the island of Crete. You go strengthen what remains. You go name elders in that area. But you two have different ministries. For Paul, the pioneer missionary... Once a church was there, he pressed on to places where there was no church, to the Spains, to the Englands, to the Britons, to the place where no church exists. This is why he could say from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, there's no more work for me to do. This is why we send out ambassadors. We send them out to places where no light exists because for Paul in his metrics, where a church existed, that was a reached location. I don't call San Diego a mission field. You know why? Because the Rock Church exists there. Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church exists there. Shadow Mountain Community Church exists there. College Avenue Baptist Church is there. There There's still every sin known to mankind that exists in San Diego. Every type of heresy, we're a small community of Christian believers. But the light of the gospel exists in San Diego. And they have thousands of gospel proclaimers. We don't call them missionaries. You know what we call them? Church members, church members, you're the missionaries to this community. If this university nearby, if your neighbors are ever going to hear the gospel, it's probably going to be because of you. It's probably going to be an opportunity that comes to you. I don't call myself a missionary. I train missionaries down in Tijuana, Mexico. That's the school that I lead, Radius. And there's other missionaries over in Taichung, Taiwan. But my responsibility is Denny and Jeffy Harper, who live right across the street, who I've invited to church five times. And they've round me, turned turned me down five times. But the sixth time, I think they're probably going to take me up on it. It's Dan and Eileen, who are my neighbors just to the left of me. It's Trevor and Carly, who are adamantly opposed to the gospel in every way, shape, and form. But they love my son. And they love these weird crocodile heads that I have in my garage. And they still come over every once in a while. And I've tried to witness to them a few times, tried to get them to church a few times. They might come, but I think it's probably going to be Dan and Eileen that come first. They're my responsibility. Because I live right next to them. Those are the ones I'm to be reaching out to. Friends, who are the people in your life that God has put in, whether they're coworkers, whether they're neighbors, whether they're family members, That God has uniquely put you in a position to hear the gospel from. You're not a missionary, but you're a faithful Christian. You're a church member. This is what Paul is pressing into. Does he belittle the existing local churches? No, that's why Timothy and Titus, his sons in the faith, 
strengthen those churches. But there is a segment of our church body, the goers, that are meant to be those who reach out to unreached language groups. And then he says this wonderful thing that I just think is so special that we are going to press into a little bit today. He says this in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Roman church, I hope that you'll help me on my way. I hope that you'll get behind me and support me. I hope that you'll pray for me. I hope that you'll encourage me as I head out on this last missionary journey, as I head to Spain, to the place where no gospel witness exists, where no church existed at that time. That's the senders, goers and senders working in unison. I made the statement last night, and I'll stand by it. About 10% of you in this room have the potential to be a goer. That's just the raw facts of it. The school that I lead, Radius, we have more applicants than we have space for. And we usually, right at the 32-year-old mark, we start to differentiate. We start to give a lot more testing. Can you learn another language? Somebody who has musical skill, somebody who's learned another language in their adult years, they have the potential to learn another language further in life. But for the vast majority of Americans, and the U.S. military has done a lot of research on this, Your ability to learn another language tails off at 32, 34, somewhere in there. Some of you have the potential, and man, I'm speaking to you guys in your teens and in your 20s and in your early 30s, to be a goer. But the vast majority of you are going to be senders. What are the marks of a good sender? What does a good sending church look like? And I'm going to come up with three, or I've come up with three marks here. Uh, Three things that are central to senders. Number one. Raise your sons and daughters to aspire to what Paul is speaking of. Raise your sons and daughters. That the mission field is not some abstract concept, is not some, whew, your mom and I never saw that coming. No, actually, we've been reading to her the book Beauty for Ashes, the story about Amy Carmichael since she was five years old. No, actually, she knows the story of John and Betty Stamm. No, actually, I remember when we gave him the biography of Hudson Taylor. No, we always made much of if you go, your mom and I will shed some tears, but we'll stand behind you. We'll get behind you. Those are the type of senders. Those are the type of parents. Those are the type of church members that participate in sending well. John Payton, that missionary that I told you about at the beginning, when he would go back, he went back one time to his home country of Scotland, and they used to sing this famous hymn. And this famous hymn would go something like this, Send our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And John Payton got up one time in one of the mega churches in Scotland, and he says this, Everyone likes to sing that hymn as long as they're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. But if they're talking about your son, your daughter, Everybody kind of gets a little bit quiet. Everybody kind of gets a little bit, is that, is that the way it is? It's always somebody else's sons and daughters? Or how about your sons and daughters? Do you raise them with that in mind? That maybe they'll be the ones to go to the Spains, to the Englands of 2022, to the Nixek people, to the Amto people, to the Garamambu people, who today in 2022 have no gospel, no disciples, no church. Do you raise your sons and daughters with that vision in mind? 
Number two, do you live in such a way that the Great Commission affects your life here? Do you live in such a way that the Great Commission affects your life here? When William Carey was heading to the country of India, the first time, the first English-speaking missionary, everybody calls him the father of modern missions. He would leave the country of England. He was a good friend with Charles, or with uh, C.H. Spurgeon, and Spurgeon would send him off, and they would have this group of guys who was with him, and they would talk about uh, sending William Carey off, and they described it as him going down a well, and he was about to go down this deep, dark well. And Carey said, I'll go down the well as long as you'll hold the rope. And he was talking about the guys at the top, the local church who would let the rope down. And guys, I'm convinced of this, that someday for the Joshes, for the other ones who are raised up from your body, who go down that well, someday the king will return. And when the king returns, he's going to ask them, show me your hands. Show me what it costs you to take the gospel where it's never been before. But the people at the top of the well, the ones lowering the rope down, the 90% of you that are sitting in this congregation today, he's going to ask you as well, show me your hands. What did it cost you? Not as a church, not even as a family, not as a Sunday school, you as an individual. What did it cost you? Did it cost you anything? Or were you a passive member in this whole process? Did you drive an older car? Did you have a skinnier 401k? Did you live in a smaller house for the sake of the gospel going to the nations? Or was there no cost whatsoever? Do you have no scars from what it will take to see the gospel go? Are you a sender that it costs you something? Or does it cost you nothing? Faithful senders have costs, they have scars. They live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life. And then the final one, faithful church members. Man, Brooks, you're coming back to church again. I am because it's so central. Are you a faithful church member? When we were sent out from our church, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, we were expecting it to be 10, 20, possibly 25 years to take the gospel to the Emmys. It took us 13 years to get there, to learn the language, to develop an orthography, to translate the word of God, to teach the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, to see elders and deacons brought up to where they're a strong local church. And when I go back in six days to see that church again and to see it growing, to meet the two new elders that I have never seen before operating as elders. I know them as kids, but now they're being brought in as elders. It took us 13 years to do that. As you send out ambassadors from your local church, your expectation should be you stay. You stay, and you stay until that local church is planted. You go for the long term. This isn't a five-week trip. This isn't a five-year trip. This is long-term establishing a local church. But here's the double-edged sword for the senders. Will you be faithful? Will you stay? Will you be here in 13 years, in 15 years, in 20 years when they come back? Or will you be affected by the light and momentary things that come through our world. The Trump, the Biden, the masks, the vaccines, the CRTs, the other issues. Ah, just he's not teaching the way I do. And you're gone. Is it only the goers who are to be faithful? Or are the senders to be equally faithful? I'm not talking about major theological issues. Your pastor starts going sideways on some theology. You should rethink those things. But the light things... Are we unified more by the gospel than by the things that come in from the outside? 
Brothers and sisters, be faithful. Be faithful church members. You expect that of your goers. Expect that of the senders as well. Good senders are faithful church members. That's what good senders are. They're faithful to their local church. And finally, we arrive at the main point, the thrust, the middle of this chiastic pattern in verse 20. And Paul says this, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul, the pioneer missionary, his driving ambition, Lord, take me to those places that have no foundation. Take me to those people groups. Take me to the Spains. May, by God's grace, I be able to see a church established among Spain. May, by God's grace, from this body, Ridgeview Bible Church, you raise up your sons and daughters. You send them off, yes, with tears. Man, the hardest place, the place that I like the least of all geographic locations in the world, LAX. I have said more goodbyes to my family at LAX. I said goodbye to my brother who went off and who's still overseas. I've said goodbye to friends. I've said goodbye to Radius students as they graduated. But we still send. And we raise our sons and daughters. We raise up those in the midst that this task is worthy. That we still have a job to do. And whether we're goers or we're senders, we're faithful to the end. Till the king returns someday. And the king asks, what did it cost you to do this? What did it cost you to be a faithful church member as a sender or a goer? May we not be ashamed in that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who has rescued us from our sins from darkness, brought us into the kingdom of light, made us sons and daughters of the king, united with you by the work of Christ on the cross, the better Adam, the better David, the better Moses. Thank you for this church body. Thank you for the way they are actively pursuing being good senders and being good goers. Father, may you fan that flame into a greater and stronger burning vision for taking your name to the ends of the earth, for those they will raise up, for their own sons and daughters. Give them courage for this day and age where to walk away from the American dream, to walk away from everything that is safe and secure and the future more stable. To walk away from that is so uncommon. And yet, for followers of you, for Christians, this is not uncommon because this is not our home. Give us a vision for our home, Father. Someday you will return. We pray that that day would be soon. But until that day comes, may you find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.